I'm Tom Ferguson, and welcome to The Fundamental Molecule. This show explores the intersection of water, technology, and entrepreneurship. Each week, I interview innovators, experts, entrepreneurs, and investors in the world of water, helping us understand where this trillion-dollar industry is headed. These are the stories of the people building the future of the world's most valuable and fundamental resource. Disclaimer. Tom Ferguson is the managing partner of Bird Island Ventures. All opinions expressed by Tom and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Burton Island Ventures. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. George Hawkins is one of those people who always elicits a smile from people who know him when he comes up in conversation and he's not there. The smile comes when he is there too, but the absent smile is telling. There is perhaps none more admired in the US water market and perhaps the global market, and rightly so. His work turning around DC water from the least trusted public entity in Washington DC to the most trusted in eight years is one of the best business transformation case studies in history and nowhere near enough people know about. Since stepping down from DC water, he's become a founder with Moonshot Missions who support under-resourced utilities to go through the same kind of transformation that he led at DC Water. He has learned what it is and how hard it is to bring something new into the world. He is a practical, fun, energetic, insightful, sensible, demanding, and a true leader to his bones. It's a pleasure to welcome him to The Fundamental Molecule. George. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Couldn't be happier to be here, my friend. It's really, really nice to have you on. In many ways, I feel like this episode has been getting on for about eight and a half years in the making. I think I saw you speak very early during my time when I specialized in, in water. And it's, um, you know, for someone who is a preternaturally gifted communicator, <laughs> this, is, this is one where I feel both nervous and excited. Nerve-sighted, I think is what we're calling it. So welcome. To give our listeners the context, why don't you start just by giving us your, to sort of the arc of your experience today, to sort of the professional context of what led you up to where you are now? Absolutely. Should I go all the way back to the, not beginning, but the... You know what? I actually think you should, because it's great. I'll tell you, one for way, way, way back is I grew up in, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and my fourth grade class went to visit the Cuyahoga River from up on the heights, Cleveland Heights, where I lived, you go down in a bus into the city and then you go down a second hill into the flats, which is where the Cuyahoga River snakes through the middle of, it would have been sunny when we left our house. And by the time we got down there, you could not see the sun. It was so polluted. The year was 1969, which displays my age. And when we got down there, I got off the bus and actually I didn't notice water first. I noticed the air. You couldn't get away from the pollutants in the air. And I asked the bus driver, what's that smell in here? And a bus driver tapped tap me on the head, said, that, my son, is the sweet smell of success. <laughs> Over the course of that, we toured these giant, I mean, mammoth steel mills. This was the head, the, the peak of car and washing machines. Everything that we associate with the modern world was being built in Cleveland and Detroit, Chicago and all these places, iron ore coming off Lake Erie. And looking in the water, you would have thought it was an old, I don't know if kids do this anymore, but finger painting. You just take the colors and mush them all around on the page. That's what the water looked like. And by the way, about three weeks later, the Cuyahoga River ignited on fire from the sparks of a passing rail car and burned for a week. 
and it was the 10th time it had burnt in the decade. We all went back to our class and wrote letters to President Nixon because we thought something ought to be done. To me, it's one of those things where we weren't educated. We weren't, we, it just was obvious. This is not right. And I trace the fact that I'm sitting here today, 60 years, well, not quite, 55 years later, because of that experience. Understanding at that fundamental level that there's something amiss and that something must be done is a motivation for life. Not that I was doing it the whole time, but there are certain things you see that you can't unsee and you can't not feel like you have to do something about. So ratchet all the way forward. I sort of forgot all that stuff. Came out of uh, law school, not sure what I wanted to do and was working for a law firm in Boston, not really liking what I was doing. I did. I am a lawyer, so not totally unusual, but not common in the water sector. And I was just about to leave, actually, the law firm. And someone dropped by my office and said, I got a project. I hear you like science, sort of a failed science person. And I said, sure, I love science. What, what do you have in your mind? He gave me a project on the spot. Do you want this project when you're a young associate? Only one answer to that question. Of course I do. I've been yes, waiting for forever. And it was a water permit from a Polaroid film plant that was about to be threatened to move from the United States. I think it was in Massachusetts, maybe New York, to Mexico to save costs. Their biggest single cost was water. So the question was, could the facility modify its permit under the Clean Water Act to reduce their water use? Now think, there's a pollutants coming out the back of the plant, the amount of water and the amount of pollutants. If you reduce the amount of water, but you have the same amount of pollutants, the concentration goes up, but the mass stays the same. And the legal question was, could you do that or not? I had forgotten that experience when I was a kid. I was not going in the environment. And on the spot, yep. I always say this to people, when it happens, you'll know it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew that because all of the things lined up. Hey, law now matters to something. There's a decision here that matters to the company and the people of this community. It matters to the river and the health and well-being of everything in it. And there's a law that's going to dictate how that decision gets made. How cool is that, that you get to use your skills have that kind of outcome. So I spent years as a private sector lawyer, just jumped over and became an EPA lawyer. So I was at the other side seeking for how do you impose these restrictions in a creative and flexible way. I'll get to the end of this quick because it moves forward fairly fast. The big question that I was wondering is, are we doing the right work? Always those questions because we kept ratcheting down those permits I mentioned and the rivers weren't getting much cleaner. And that's because the pollutants weren't coming from the back of plants anymore by the 1980s and 1990s, for the most part. They're coming from runoff of the land. And I realized mm -hmm. I was doing the wrong work. So I downsized myself to run a small water nonprofit in New Jersey, go to the belly of the beast, which was focused on land use. I spent seven years going to community meetings every night about how to improve the water quality in a local community. From there... I realized that the biggest places that could implement a lot of the solutions were cities. And the question was, where were the water issues in cities? That led me to Washington, D.C., where I ran the Department of Environment. There I did stormwater, which was the single biggest. Cobbled mm -hmm. together a little amount of money to do green infrastructure. And then the mayor said, well, why don't you consider working for the water utility? All the same topic. Water utility had hundreds of millions of dollars at its disposal. It was roundly disliked, including by me. <laughs> right, yeah. I regulated them, didn't like them, fought with them all the time. But the notion that you could, 
deploy and harness that scale of investment to change the ecology that we were all concerned about intrigued me. And that's when I, I went over to DC Water, did that job for eight years. Since then, I've been running a nonprofit startup, more in your world, for how to help organizations like DC Water adopt water strategies. That's a long way answer, but that's the arc. It's so helpful because I think understanding the professional context is really important. It's amazing to me actually how long it took you, I think, to maybe self-conceptualize as an entrepreneur. Like the idea of going to community meetings in New Jersey every night for four years is the work of the best possible entrepreneur. That instinct for primary participation, understanding the hell out of like whatever the sausage is, however that's going to get made. It's the foundation of everything that kind of comes later. But you kind of didn't get it until you actually just started something yourself, though you've been acting like it all the way through. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Just quickly, one thing I wanted to zero in on. So when you change, I love this idea of it's almost like the cop joining the, I don't know, the sharks or the jets or whatever. <laughs> you know, coming in, it's like, hi, I'm now going to be running things here. Just this change in perception of DC water. One of the hardest things to change ever is perceptions. Just give us an idea. You alluded to it, the reputation of DC water within the city of DC before you started. Gosh, the worst lead contamination crisis in the United States, perhaps ever, but before Flint was in Washington, DC. There had been a lead contamination. The utility was roundly blamed for not telling anybody, which was a common yeah. issue for most public agencies. It's not in our job to communicate. Our job is to do something specific. So DC Water didn't, at WASA, it was known at the time, the Water and Sewer Authority did not communicate with the public it served about what mm -hmm. had happened, why, and what it meant. The people in mm -hmm. D.C. felt that D.C. Wassa had poisoned their children. And mm -hmm. they had well been right because of all this happened. Yeah. And then by the time they informed the public, it had already been enough time. Like, my kids have already been contaminated for the last period of time, months, and you didn't even tell us. So it was roundly not trusted, to put it yeah. mildly. And it had almost no customer service. People at DC Wassa felt that their job was to fix things and to build things, but not connecting to the people they were fixing and building things for. I regulated them and my first meeting with them, I hadn't met them yet. This was new. I was all open to being creative and they came in sure. dark suits, ready yeah. to fight. I didn't even know what we were going to fight about, but that was what they were ready for. And as a result, they, there was a survey that I remember reading when I was thinking of applying where people were asked what was the worst customer service agencies in Washington, D.C. And my recollection is that D.C. Wasa was last. It was certainly in the bottom five down there with the Internal Revenue Service and Public Works and other agencies. It's a hot competition. Yeah, very, very hard sure. to get to the bottom of that list. But for the people who did know that D.C. Wasa existed, and most people really didn't know them, they were there at all, it was roundly disliked, both because you poisoned our kids and didn't tell us, and you mm -hmm. gave us terrible public service. We can't find anybody. We don't know who. By the way, as an example of that, D.C. Wasa, when they used to send out bills, would send them to occupants and had an email address. And this is for an agency wow. of several thousand employees. It's sort of mind-boggling to, to realize. So you turn up day one. Like, what are you thinking? You've got, obviously, a sort of a fairly major like change operation to like have on your on your hands. What were you thinking? Everyone always talks about the first 100 days. I don't know whether you conceptualized it in that way, but like, what was on your mind when you started? Several things. First lessons that I had learned of what not to do in coming into a new organization. 
I had been at EPA, as I mentioned, when the Clinton administration came, in which I was otherwise favorably inclined towards in the electoral world, not that I would have served any anyone who came in. And I remember the day the new regional administrator for EPA, super smart, super capable, walked in the door and gave a speech to the assembled legal team. They hadn't met him before. He was known. He had been Governor Dukakis's chief of staff. And he comes in and he gives a speech about the five things he was going to do to change EPA in New England. This is a Boston office. I had two reactions to it. One was I agreed with almost everything he said. And second, I wanted to fight him on almost everything he said. And the reason is that he never spent one second talking to anybody in the place about what was on our mind. Why do you do the things when he was, we do this wrong, we have to fix it, this wrong. He had no idea why we did it that way. Are there reasons that we did it that way that made sense? Is there, what are our thoughts? So it was being imposed on us without any engagement. And I was quite struck at how negative my reaction was, given that when I listened to the words intellectually, I actually liked what he was saying. And I've taken that lesson with me ever since. So I had, Mm -hmm. when I was hired, I was charged with improving the lead program, adding some natural infrastructure in the city, getting the budget under control, engaging with the community better, because I've done some of that in my prior agency. But otherwise, it was literally, can you just make the place a nicer organization? It was very touchy-feely. But I came in strongly with the conviction that I will absolutely fail if I come in with, here's what's going to happen and here's what we're going to do. I did have one huge advantage on that topic, which is I didn't really know what to do. I knew the laws that governed a water utility. But I I actually sort of vaguely understood the steps in treatment and distribution and collection, but only vaguely. That gave me a huge advantage, actually, because I didn't come in knowing, well, yeah, do this, yeah, do that. I was asking everybody, well, what should I do? What's the challenge you have? And I met with all the employees of the enterprise in small groups over the first six months. So the opposite of a preset agenda and asked them, what's on your mind? A lot of were complaints about various things, but it was amazing how many good ideas came up and how many challenges came up that needed good ideas. But it wasn't me. I was listening and capturing. So then we started on an agenda where we started on those. It wasn't me imposing. It was me helping solve their issues with some of their ideas. And that opened the door. It was amazing the speed at which those ideas started to come when people felt this guy isn't imposing things on us. He's listening and actually doing things that help us in our world. I think that's what uh, started us on our path. Again, absolutely unbelievable that you didn't self-conceptualize as an entrepreneur. If somebody told me that in a pitch meeting, I yes, please. Absolutely. Somebody who just sat down and actually listened, what are the genuine nuances of what the problems are to be solved rather than look at this thing that I built, care about it as much as I do, you know, et cetera. I think that that as a basis for change is absolutely fascinating. So when did you know during your sort of eight year transition, and anybody knows anything about overall kind of transitions of organizations as large as DC Water, that is unbelievably short. When did you know that this was a battle that you could win, that you could turn this organization into something, an entity that would be perceived in a way that you would be proud of? Uh, That is a great question, and it's a very personal answer, which is this. I had been, as I mentioned, a lawyer, private, public, government, none, but I'd always been in the world of environmental laws where an entity like DC Wasa or any other 
across the world that discharges pollutants is a polluter. And you impose obligations on the polluter, whatever they cost and the laws to control that bad behavior. And you think of that agency in that context. And I didn't think of the people as bad. I just, you're a polluter. I regulated them. I was tough on them. That was my perception, my world perception. I remember pretty vividly the changeover that I I wasn't, I didn't know for sure that was going to happen for the rest of the world, but it happened for me. And as soon as I thought, if I just went through this change, couldn't lots of other people at places go through the same change? Which mm-hmm. was, I remember uh, talking to all the staff and meeting with them, and I could tell they were all beaten down, but there was this pride underneath. And I never didn't get it in a common story, but wait, we take water off the Potomac and mm-hmm. we clean it to make sure it's drinkable and usable by everybody in the nation's capital. They use mm-hmm. it for whatever they want to use it for, as long as it's not illegal in some fashion, and they give it back to us. We transport it and clean it again and put it back in the Potomac. I remember the moment because I did not think this way until I mm-hmm. was just, is wait, this is a whole recycling program, the mm-hmm. biggest and most important recycling program in all of Washington, D.C. is right here. We are an environmental organization, not a sewer company. We are cleaning the most essential element to the, the ability of this city region to survive. And we're the ones who do that. And I remember the day when I came back and we did have a big meeting of not all the staff, but most of the staff at a big auditorium. And I was standing in the front saying this, and I almost felt like I was realizing it as I was saying it. But I was talking to myself, I just want you to know, as I've listened to you, I believe that you are the most important environmental advocates and environmental activists in a city full of them. I went through the explanation for why I thought it was true with this whole cycle thing. And by mm-hmm. the way, an agency yeah. typically yeah. doesn't see that because they have peace. Everyone does a piece of it, but doesn't think of the whole because they've got their little slice. Here's what happened. I, I remember watching and people sat up in their chair visibly like, yeah, that's right. So that started with me. Then I could mm-hmm. see it in the team realizing something about themselves and to me, once we realize something about it was just a matter of time until we tell that story to others. And as long as it had integrity and truth to it, so at least a strong element of truth, other people could understand that, too. And it wasn't a hard story. So it wasn't like yeah. it was complicated with lots no, of No, this is yeah. a fundamental, straightforward, simple story that I hadn't thought about in 47 years of life. But once I did, I couldn't not look at it in any other way. That yeah, it's when I thought transformation is coming. Fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Because you give people the why and a lot of the rest of it takes care of themselves. And again, we see this, you know, overall, especially as companies get bigger, it's really easy to lose sight of that overall why get, to get like too zeroed in on your, on your individual vertical to take it from the kind of foundational giving people the, the why. And I, do, I really don't want to trivialize it because it really is super for anybody who knows utilities knows how giving people that insight, how profoundly impactful that's going to be, but to go from the outside in. So the importance of like, I just wanted to do the rebrand is what I'm getting at is that changing it from DC water to DT, DC water. How did you think about it? How did that come about? I mean, you are many things, George. Maybe you are an innate marketing guy. I don't know. But what was that process like? And why was it so important? Process was fascinating and cheap, by the way. Um, We did this without (laughs) hardly spending any money because we did a contest. Once we started talking about ourselves, we did a public contest that anybody could add 
what do you think of us and how would you describe mm-hmm. us? And we got toilets and turds and fire hydrants, <laughs> I mean, all sorts of strange and wonderful kids. But what stood out to us were colors. The mm-hmm. colors of the agency needed to reflect what we felt about ourselves. So bright greens mm-hmm. and blues, simplicity. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm not a marketing person, but I know what I, I would see what DC Wasa trucks and not know it was DC Wasa because their la- logo looked like every other government. Yeah. It's step one, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of readily identifiable. There was hand and water on it. And I was, I, as you may know, I wore a, a standard issue uniform every day to work. And I yep. went at a water main break and someone came up to me and asked me, uh, they could work for me. And I said, sure. What are you interested in? And they want to know if I work, how they could work for the Department of Corrections. And the reason that I believe they saw the hand over water on this little patch, and it looked like two hands in a handcuff. So I figured if you can't tell who I work for or what I do when we're out in the street, why would you pay for it? We have a value proposition we have to offer to people who have to pay our freight. And if they don't mm-hmm. know what their money is going for, why on earth would they pay for it? So with the water drop, that all DC, our whole logo is that water drop tilted to the side to make it a little informal. I got lots of good advice. This was none of the only thing I take credit for is water's life was our phrase, which was yeah. trying to capture that essence of an environmental organization. And it's simple. It's easy, bright colors. Everybody knew us. By the way, that's not only because, oh, they're good over there. We would get calls about the truck that was at the restaurant for three hours and wanting yeah. to know what was going on. It upped our game. And had to up our game once everybody knew who we are and where we were. So it was actually yep. a performance issue. But the branding was to capture something, not just about what we thought about ourselves, but what we wanted folks who looked at us to think about us. Yes. At least that was one of, I'm no expert, but one of the thoughts I had is a lot of, when we were talking about branding is, I want the brand to be what I think of DC Water. And the sewer department would want to have it what their thought. And the water department, would, how we think we should be reflected. And I think the question we asked in the public contest is, how do you see us in yep. a positive way? So it wasn't about how we want to be, it's how the people we serve see us. And I think that was the important step. Absolutely fascinating. So towards the end of your eight years, I think we could talk about the transformation of DC One. Personally, I've said this before to you, but I think it's the single most impressive case study of business transformation that I've ever seen. And I encourage everybody to dig into it with whatever resources you can. But let's go to the initial idea of Moonshot Missions. You're coming towards the end of your eight years at DC Water and you're thinking, okay, what's next? Walk us through that, the formation of the Moonshot Mission idea and this idea that you're going to go and roll up your sleeves. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you had previously perceived entrepreneurs while you were in the seat at DC Water. Sure. And the two converged. Once we became, once we started to do things interesting and we became a mecca for technology entrepreneurs to visit. And you already sort of mentioned one of the most typical, by the way, earnest, wonderful people. I'm not making any human Mm -hmm. level of criticism whatsoever, but folks who, just as you sort of described, they're so taken up by the thing that they have created that when you walk into the room, that's the first thing you hear about. Unless you happen to be an expert in the thing that kind of thing, well, it does this and has these three things most of the time. I'm a lawyer. I'm like, well, yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about at the moment or any idea why it matters to me. And I'd be mad at my executive assistant, like, why the heck did you wipe out 15 minutes of my day for this or whatever the time frame was? And I heard that a lot from the team in various ways, never sort of direct yeah. on, but I, oh, we just had this meeting 
total waste of time, don't bother. And it was almost always for the same. We didn't know why we were there. Common why question. And that started weighing on me when I started telling the DC water story to other audiences around the country and around the world. What happened and why, what would... And I would tell a little bit of the story and I had utility directors and employees come up to me all the time. This was in the mid, Mm -hmm. long before Moonshot became an idea of, that's an interesting story. You tell it pretty well. It has no bearing on where we are. We don't have the resources you have. We don't have this. We don't have that. How? So glad to hear it, but we're going back to what we've always done. And that started to weigh on my mind. And that was, by the way, Tens of thousands, I didn't talk to all 10,000, but by the people I talked to, tens of thousands of entities were in that boat of what are we going to do? So the two things that are, how come we were resistant to certain kinds of presentations at our scale? And second, how are others who are not even at that point, they're not at the point of being able to listen. How do you merge those two? Because the only way those places, all of whom came up to me and said, we are facing terrible problems, but none of the ideas that you have are relevant to us of how you would match up the needs of these places with the opportunities that existed. And that's where it sprung to mind, Moonshot. What we need is an entity that has no stake in an outcome. So we're not selling anything. Mm-hmm. It has people in it who have been there and done it. Um, not, you know everything, but we have seen how this works. We understand your world. And we have a sense of what's possible. And we sort of walk at your side to help you identify, implement, understand, train, inventory, all the things that a lot of entrepreneurs don't necessarily, they want to sell their thing by this. Or for this, yeah. I need, what's the inventory I need? What's the training I need? To impl- all the things that immediately pop into a utility executive's mind. We want to be able to be that voice, a trusted voice. And I became convinced that Moonshot was needed. That is why I stepped down from DC Water to try my hand. Right. No idea what was coming. Totally made every entrepreneurial mistake probably that's possible. So I did not listen to any of these podcasts because they didn't exist back then. And it's a tough market, by the way. So I, we had picked something that's hard I to noticed. do. It was clearly something we felt, I felt was needed in the marketplace. It wasn't clear the marketplace was sure that it was needed in the marketplace. Other than I kept on hearing people saying things that needed an answer. I couldn't see an answer unless we created something to be the answer. Absolutely fascinating. So, so you make the jump and you form the organization. One of the things I always wondered is that what is the single biggest transferable lesson from your time running a very large organization with all of the resources to running a very small organization with no resources, but that kind of stayed the same? I think what stays the same is the focus on people. And by the way, it's not that we didn't focus on money. I had no idea how I was going to pay any of the people. But the only way I could get anyone to want to invest or pay us is by having the right people. Maybe this sounds very common, but we had a good idea. Um, Sat in our living room here, actually, right where I am in the living room, room over with a big whiteboard, 1199 Home Depot, white, and threw out what we wanted to build. The core of our business was not any of the technologies we helped hoped to help a utility adopt. The core of our idea was relationship and trust building. And that was exactly what happened at DC Water. I had to come into the enterprise and build relationships and trust with this very large group that had all sorts of existing procedures enough to drive you nuts. 
But any of those things can work if the people who operate the machine trust you and are open both for their ideas to be heard and to hear yours in return. And that was my big initial question. Who are the right people? What are the relationships we need to build? And then if we have a good story to tell, I was hopeful that the financing and the business part would come rather than the other way around. And it was slow going at first, but I'm glad we started there. Yeah, for sure. Whenever I think about organization building and people sort of never, they always discount nonprofits. Nonprofit is just a tax status. It's got nothing to do with, like, it doesn't make anybody less of an entrepreneur. I mean, look at, you know, water.org and water equity. Like, there's a really good case to be made that actually the best entrepreneur in history is Gary White. No, I think that's fascinating. And the focus on people is, yeah, you've got to get the right people in the seats. Just to stay with that theme for a second, thinking about building the team over time, you're not how many people? 25, I would say, is where we are now. But 25. And so as you've sort of gone through the gears, and you're still, like, obviously relatively, relatively small, but building the team from scratch over time, if you reflect on the last kind of couple of years or last few years, what is it that that's turned, like, taught you about building a team from scratch rather than, I think, was your previous experience of sort of inheriting one? So now that you had your, you've added people to organizations over time, but never really built a group from the ground up. How do you think about it now? It's interesting because part of my answer is, is a common theme on both. When I got to DC Water or DC Was at the time, DC Water, the common practice was that you need a position, you develop a formal position description, and you post it, and you wait to see who comes. And I always thought, I'm trying to recruit a Super Bowl team. And Super Bowl teams don't get built by waiting to see who comes. You go find your best players and go after them. And so we started to actively, not just who out there, who have lists of people at the ready. So when somebody opened, we knew we were cultivating in advance all the kinds of things that I would think a good sport team would do. So important. I had the same experience coming in to Moonshot. What part of our approach was to open ourselves up and see who arrives, who is caught up in the mission so we know they care because they've voluntarily come our way. We're not offering lots of money. We're not, so they must be motivated and have the good idea in mind. But also of the people we know in the world, who are we going to go after, recruit to become our core start? And that was some of the chieftains I knew. And I was reasonably surprised that they were interested in joining us early on. But they were talked to, we had been talking to them, slowly building the idea. So that by the time the actual decision, would you like to join us? It's almost as if the conversation was already finished. It's already been. Because we've been working on and talking about it for that much time. So it's both being intentional, but also making clear what you need and seeing who comes, not just because they want a job. And we didn't have enough attributes that someone would come our way because they were expecting to make a lot of money. They self-selected because they were already interested in our mission. And that worked for them. It's really interesting. It reminds me of one of the founders that was kind enough to take a check from Burnt Island was talking about fundraising the other day. And he told his team relatively recently that it's really important not to think about fundraising when you are fundraising. You've got to treat it as if you are always fundraising because fundraising is the outcome of a very intentional process of just being brilliant all the time. And brilliant hiring is having that list, right? It's building those relationships so that when you, when you go say, want to join up? The question's already been answered. That's really cool. So just give us an idea about the panoply of challenges faced by small utilities. And then we're going to segue a little bit into the product, actually, that Moonshot Missions provides with a little bit of kind of more detail. 
I think it's really important for people to understand the operating context of the people that you work with. Sure. And our target audience is small, but I would say the common theme is under-resourced. There's actually many utilities that are not only small. Gary, Indiana is not a small community, but they're very under-resourced. So yeah. most common theme is utilities that don't have financial resources to invest. They're not keeping up with what their bottom, their sort of basic budget needs are, let alone having extra money sitting around. There's this great thing that could save you money. Well, I don't have the money to invest in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. <laughs> second to even unlock it. They're understaffed. So who is going to be the person who's going to understand enough about what's going on out there to say, yeah, these are 10 ideas. Here's the ones that are relevant to us. I have a sense because I've been to conferences or otherwise of who we might want to talk to. Folks in these utilities rarely go to conferences. Not that they never do, but it's rare. Finances, resources straight out of the gate. And those limitations, resource limitations, it's not goodwill. It's not hard work. It's not good heart and conscience. It's not intelligence. It's literally those resources. And we formed Moonshot with those missing components in mind that we would help sort of add. And the question for us is, we don't want us to be permanent. How to take an organization that has those resource limitations and teach them to fish, knowing that when you start, they don't think they have the time to fish anymore, or I don't know if that technology works. That's the challenge of these places is no matter how good the outcome is that some new approach could deliver to them, you don't have the upfront wherewithal to get there. Or even to think yeah. about it. And there's, like I said, tens of thousands of places that have those attributes. Yeah, no question. It's like terror of where exactly am I going to find the time to go and talk about change, the change plan, all the rest of it. So your credibility is obviously really key. You had that going in personally, and I think given who you hired, like as a team, like have things gotten easier over time? Like how how has the word of Moonshot been? transferred? Is it happy customers talking to other happy customers? Is it you being out there within kind of industry conferences? As you think about your own kind of path to market with what you're trying to do, like what's been your kind of most effective channel, I guess? That's a great question. And I will say that early on, we were not good at this. I'm sure other startups have this. We were cash starved. So we were literally willing to do most anything if someone would, within legal constraints, if someone was willing to fund us. And we lost our focus on doing what I just described. We were writing papers and doing all sorts of other things because someone was willing to fund us to do that, as opposed to what we really were formed for. Huge lesson for me. I know why we did it. I'm not sure exactly what we would have done differently, but it was a tough time to hone in. And our market's a tough one. We're trying to help utilities that have no money. I think we had good credibility. Although another irony was I'm reasonably well-known in the bigger utilities. A lot of utilities we went to were like, who are you? Since they had never been to, like, why should we talk to you? You're not from, particularly if we weren't from the state or something, we had no reason for them to know us. Yeah, yeah. Which, along with being sufficiently humbling and in a good way, was something we had to overcome. It was slow going at first. We did hire not just senior dignitaries, who were well-known sort of in that echelon of larger, well-resourced utilities. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. hired a few local people who were not well-known, but known and understood for the jobs they did at that level. And they yep. made connections much faster than we did. The other thing we did is folks who knew that we were needed, not necessarily the customer, 
state agencies who have utilities that are always a challenge for them. And they're investing all these resources in trying to help them. Say, we need someone to help them. If we knew the state agencies, they would provide the introduction to the customer. If the customer didn't know us, they didn't know their regulator. And the regulator says, you should talk to these folks. They can help you. That early on probably opened more doors than any other single step by far. And then once we did start rolling through some positive outcomes, there's a water system that had a boil water alert that we helped lift because we understood what their issue was and helped them resolve it. Then they started to talk to each other. And that's when it started to grow. But I would say our biggest early um, support was from others who had interests in the outcomes we were seeking, even if they weren't the direct customer. Okay, that's really, really interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about the sort of overall change within the water sector. We've had $100 billion. I know I find myself getting very upset about the Inflation Reduction Act and that only about whatever 5.5 of it went to water and $250 billion went to the loan programs office, of which we we're allowed to receive precisely none. But nonetheless, we do have $100 billion, which is I mean, probably an order of magnitude less than what it needs to be. Right. But nonetheless, all of it's appropriated. It's slowly going to start percolating into it. What are your reflections on it? And how do you think the various people within water can be doing the work to make sure that the impact of that is as high as it can be? That may be kind of too large a question, but I'm just curious as to your reflections. Take a little snippet, because I was running my prior agency and then DC WASA at the time in the banking crisis. And big ARA stimulus funds come through. And the word of the day was shovel ready. What are the projects you have ready to go? We want to put people to work. I had my challenges with that program, but it was clear what this was for. It wasn't infrastructure renewal. It was a jobs program. So we were doing very common things that didn't improve, didn't change the efficiency of our operations, didn't improve our cut. We were replacing old rusted things with new shiny things, but they weren't different than what was the same thing you would have put in 100 years ago. Except the power sector did it differently back then. I remember learning that they were actually not only investing in the grid, but upgrading the grid at the same time. I yeah. don't know why they were able to do that where we weren't in water, but I was impressed by it. That is what we should do. So you ratchet all the way forward and we have, yes, it's not enough money. There will never be enough money. That will always be an underlying pressure. And We'll never be enough money unless we invest it differently. Can we, what I found at DC Water, you could put money into something and have it be permanently cheaper. I know this is old hat to the technologies you support, so that it costs $80 next year instead of 100 so you don't need as much money to run. Or that extra yeah. 20 you can reinvest and you don't need that from extra rates. And that can start a positive feedback loop, which mm-hmm. is what we discovered after several years of investment at DC Water. And that's the challenge of this money, not its quantity but the kinds of projects that it invests in. My worries is that government does still want speed. They want money to be invested. I get it. We want to deploy public funds well. It takes a little longer to scheme out a project that actually changes things a bit so it costs $80 instead of $100. If you're going to do what you've always done, that's a pretty simple, straightforward project that we could submit next week. We're going to design something that's going to permanently cost us $80 or $70 or some wonderful outcome It's going to take us a little while to figure that out. And having the time to do that while there's the pressure to deliver is a not an insurmountable challenge, but it's a challenge that I see rather than the total amount. Of course, we need more. If we invest it right, I think we're going to be dumbfounded 
and astonished in a good way of what we can accomplish. That's going to take quite a bit of assistance of the sort that Moonshot seeks to give and way more than we can give. I mean, a national effort of this level. So going back to you and you running Moonshot as an, as an entrepreneur, as you think about your own acquisition of skills, and I don't think the answer is I have all the skills, <laughs> but as you think about your own acquisition of skills in the first years of Moonshot's growth, how do you reflect on how you've changed and what do you think is going to be demanded of you in the next kind of five to seven years as you build this entity? Do you have a sense of that yet? It's a fascinating question because the, when I started, what I realized I did not have was much thought or experience with, so how should, not the, what the work is or the business model, but as you build it. The work's fine. Yeah. What should the organization look like? We have no HR department. What should be in it and what should it offer? And what are the rules and procedures and all of these things? I'm not particularly good at that. I don't usually have strong opinions about such things, but people need to have that. So they understand where they fit in the universe as they do their work. And fortunately, we're sort of stumbling our way to those kinds of outcome. And I'm grateful for the patience of the people who have come to work at Moonshot for the period of time when we haven't had those things. The way it's changing for me, although in some ways, it's almost like I was missing all these things. And now the change is coming back to where I'm more comfortable, which I'm starting to be able to hire people who know how to do those things. So I can go back to doing what I'm more suited for, which is how do we tell our story in a sustainable fashion so that we can engage the support we need? And both of those things need to be done. And I wasn't doing those other things early on, and we stumbled a lot as a result. Also pulling back. I'm sure every entrepreneur knows this. I had thought I worked hard at DC Wasa. It has been a more time-consuming and demanding effort to stand up a small organization than anything I've ever done. And I'm in my 60s. And I hadn't thought about that either way. I didn't think it was going to be easy. I just didn't have it on my mom and start Moonshot. No, you just wrote off the next four years of your life, nights and weekends. I'm glad I did it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Walking into knowing that, I was not prepared for. And I'm looking forward to somehow figuring this out in a way that I don't have to quite do as much of that in the days ahead as I've done in the days behind, but we shall see. It's a really interesting one. I think one of the things that was most useful about starting in a in an accelerator and working with a ton of early stage companies is that your N gets very high very quickly, and you realize the degree to which anybody who is trying to start anything new is worthy of respect. This is actually one of the reasons why living in San Francisco was so helpful. Is that it's very difficult to understand culturally what's in the ether out there. That the expectation is that you go and do your own thing and that there are zero downsides for failure and everybody knows how hard it is. So everybody's trying to kind of pull in the same direction. Culturally, it's... Uh, it's, it's completely the opposite. No idea how hard it was. Very little downside no. risk in the government sector. And yeah. total, and by the way, not an unusual mismatch in entrepreneurs coming into public utilities. Both good people. They just are, they're on different universes. And the question is how to create common ground between them. Totally. But I think one of the things that I find most frustrating often is that there's so much shade thrown at the utility. The best entrepreneurs figure it out. It's not as if you can't get velocity out of the US utility market, but like the really good entrepreneurs go and meet them where they're at. You know, the customer wants to paint it green, go understand the incentive structures, go build relationships, spend time with them. Don't try and like build a whole solution around a product that makes sense in the context of the person that's trying to buy the damn thing. 
And that's the difference between even good entrepreneurship and truly great is the ability to go and meet them like halfway, find that common ground. But I think the onus is on the entrepreneur, not the utility to suddenly magically get good and change all their incentive structures and blah. The variable should be on the entrepreneur side, not on the, on the utility slide. Which ironically, Tom, comes back to where we started. My training as a lawyer, what I learned is the most important thing a lawyer can do. Not every lawyer does this, mm -hmm. but what I took from it is understand the audience that you're talking to and construct an argument or a position in their mindset. And successful lawyers, whether you're in front of a jury or a regulator or a judge, you're trying to figure out what matters to them and how can I present my case in a way that allows them to say yes. In this world, it's always, I'm telling you what I think and I'm telling you what I feel. I'm like, well, that's fine with your kids or whomever. Right. I don't know who that's okay yeah. with. But when you're in this world, figure out what your audience is interested in and pattern your conversation that way. And it's amazing how differently it goes. Most audiences are not used to that. They're used to having someone come in and talk to them and pre tell them things. And this is what it is yeah. and all the rest. And I'm, anyways, the lawyer training has been helpful, even though I've never done a startup. The idea of thinking in the mindset of, of your audience was ingrained from the legal training I had. Super interesting because you preempted the next and one of our, our last questions is that, I mean, I said at the top that you're, you're a really good communicator. I've never heard you say expressly say that the architecture, like intellectual architecture is, is to do with your legal training. It makes a ton of sense in, in retrospect. If you were to advise people who need communication skills, which is literally everyone, what do you think are the variables that are tunable to allow people to at least go on the path to communicating at your level? And I, I realize it's kind of a quick question. I would say that of a really super fun interview, that's my favorite question, because it's the one that I tend to think that particularly smart, capable people forget. Public speaking is like any other skill. And I often would see technology people come into DC water, and it seemed like when they made a presentation that it was the first time they'd ever delivered it, and they didn't know who we were in the room. And I saw that all the time. All throughout my career, someone that I know this, this is when I'm telling you what I think. The most important first step about presentation and speaking is to realize it's a skill that's independent of what you're saying and yeah. how you go about preparing it. I actually have, not promoting it here, I have a curriculum I call the persuasion curriculum that I teach. And I've outlined a practical set of steps as a discipline that a speaker would go through to be prepared for an audience before they walk in. Everything from yeah. what building am I walking into? A convention, a few things. About, everybody likes hearing something nice about a place that they know. Who's going to be in the room? What are they is important to them? How can I make all this sounds like Hallmark card commercial territory? But to me, it's always stunning how many times people don't do that. And yeah. before I would go front of DC Council, even though I've done thousands of those, we would have what we call murderer's row. And I would be peppered for hours by members of the staff thinking of the worst questions that they could ask me. And we go over and over and over again, despite the fact it's all I did every day, all day long. So that when the actual event happened, it's sort of like a great athlete. They don't walk on the field and just play well. They practice whatever they're doing 85,000 times before they have to do it under pressure. And most speakers don't do that. It's a learnable skill. As soon as people, and I'm not saying it's so great, I do the, they're like, that makes total sense. I'm like, it does. <laughs> this is not complicated. It's just most people don't think about it. Taking on speaking as a skill 
is to be learned independent of whatever you're good at is absolutely perhaps one of the most worthwhile single improvements or steps that any person can take, no matter what they do. Absolutely. I think it's one of the things that most surprised me about my curriculum at business school, that there were two things that weren't taught, and that was persuasion and sales. And when you get into the world of entrepreneurship, that's the ball game, basically. It's interesting that my experience, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but the smarter somebody gets, the less preparation there is because the presumption is because I'm smart, by the way, they often are. I'm not saying they're not smart, but they're no, no, sure. smart. Their idea is good. It will be obvious that it's good and will therefore win the day. And that goes back to that meeting I had at EPA. That guy was really smart. I became his good friend, but he was so caught up in it that it turned off everybody in the room listening, not because of the ideas, but because it's all sort of part of that, part of that world. And smart yeah. people are, are more really at risk. And it's amazing when you see people who can marry the two people who can structure an idea and articulate an idea, despite obviously being like, you know, nth level smart, because then you know that they've done the work or crucially, you know, they have the talent for it, which is something that is trainable, but, you know, as you said, takes time and work. George, I have about a billion more questions for you, but we're going to go, we've, we're out of time. And the fundamental molecule has a repeated last question for each of our guests, which is if you're talking to a group of entrepreneurs in water, what is your biggest piece of advice to all of the emergent water entrepreneurs out there? That's a great final question and uh, delight. I would say more than one, although I'll be quick. One is thank them. God bless that there are people out there who are young. I didn't come upon this until it sort of struck me in the face. So I admire folks who are already there and trying to solve one of the fundamental issues that govern the future of every freaking species on the planet. So God bless them for doing mm-hmm. it. Second mm-hmm. is that humble question of what is it that you're trying to solve and who are you trying to solve it for? Who's your eyes? Maybe that's the same thing we've been talking about. Most people I have discovered, I've found in my limited experience, they come with the idea first and then sort of hunt around for a place where the idea applies, as opposed to I've really learned the sector. I understand how it works and what it matters. And I'm now going to apply the knowledge and capabilities my friends and I have to create a solution that's meaningful and will create a business and people will be willing to buy and sort of flipping this, that story. And that'd be my most common challenge I've always seen is someone coming in with something that I had no idea why it mattered to us, even though it sounded interesting, yeah. as opposed to, we know, we know enough about you to know that this matters. We have a solution that is meaningful to you in your context. And here's why. Last thing I'll say, by the way, is don't wait Whoever the entrepreneur is, till the, often it's the thing other than even if, and by the way, when you do it, here's what the numbers will look like. I remember I saw a really good tech presentation where that was the final slide. And I think everybody in the room had already lost interest. And the, sort of, of don't be shy and bashful if, once you decide what the problem is. And here's the notion of how you, the solution, I'm going to describe how you're going to get here. But here's the A, there's the B. Now I'm going to describe how we get to the B with some examples along the way that are like you. But the B is something you hear really early and really often in your world and why it matters. So that would be my suggestion. Absolutely phenomenal. George, it's always a huge pleasure. Really looking forward to the next time we see each other in person. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on The Fundamental Molecule. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure to be with you. 